I appreciate you being here for the first of 2020. Uh, we're starting a new series that I've called Modern Family Ties. And this is just the setup of the, of the, of the series. This is just kind of the tell you where we're headed with it, with a little bit of challenge. Uh, but I was, uh, I was thinking about this series for a while, about how to talk about the family. And one thing I realized is how much family has changed over the years. Um, if, if you're old like me, back in the day, there was a show called Family Ties. Uh, nuclear family, husband and wife, married a long time, had you know three kids, and it was it was the typical what people used to think of as family. That was back in the old days. Now there's a show called Modern Family, as if the modern family is this hodgepodge of whatever type of relationship you choose to throw together, whether it's a husband and wife or a man and a man or a. Or you know, it's just it's just this conglomeration of relationships that have been termed family, and and one of the things I know is that word family is not an emotionally neutral term, and it is so varied and so complex, it's hard to define anymore what a family is and what a family isn't, and so that's part of the difficulty in today, and the only constant that remains is that family. And marriage is difficult. Right? It's hard. It's hard. And this series is difficult to teach on because every one of our experiences is different. Some of us grew up with a mom and a dad that loved each other and are, and are, are you know, and old and, and senile now, but they're still married and they think they still love each other because they don't know any different because, you know, they're just old. Some of us come from broken homes where we didn't have a daddy at home or didn't have a mama at home. Some of us come from families where one parent had to play the role of both, and that's a no-win situation. It's so hard. Some of us had a dad at home, but he didn't act like a father. He might have been a sperm donor, but that's about it. Some of us are raised by grandparents. Some, you know, some of us come from adopted, we've been adopted, we don't know who our mom and dad is. We've been adopted and, I mean, it's just so varied and so complex. And it's hard. And the things we have in common is this. One, we didn't pick our family. They're born into it, right? Because, you know, we would all say, boy, if I could pick it, I might pick some others, like, We didn't pick our family, and, and, and especially not just family is, is, is not an emotionally neutral term, but the word father especially is not an emotionally neutral term. There's so much baggage that comes with the word father. There's so much baggage that comes along with that. And it makes it very difficult to talk about God as our father. Because our perception of God as our Father revolves around the relationship we had with our earthly father. To have a distant mom is one thing, and it's terrible and brutal, but to have a distant father is, shakes the very foundation. 
And so many men who grow, grew up with distant fathers, absentee fathers, end up replicating that. And so I realize that the moment we start talking about family, this is not an emotionally neutral subject. And I realize we can't pick our family, so we just try to do the best with what we got, right? The other thing I realize about family is that none, no, no one we're related to is as smart as us, right? Right? Like, like if, it, 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 we know how to fix everybody, and if they would just listen to us, I'll tell you the problem with your kid. Right? I'll tell you how to handle that one. Like, you need to get a job. You need to keep your mouth shut. You need to not, you know. But I also realize the other thing that's common, we don't pick our family. We're just going to do the best with our God. We're smarter than everybody that's related to us, and we, we can fix their lives. They just let us. But the other thing I know that's common in every one of us is that there come a times when we have no idea how to make it work. Just throw up your hands. I, I don't know. I'm just doing my best. Another thing that makes this subject so difficult to teach on, I don't know if you've thought about this, but in the Bible, there's almost no positive example of a family. Think about it. Especially in the Old Testament. Literally, every example of a family in the Bible is messed up. There's no consistently positive example, especially in the New Testament, of any single family unit. Think about the first family, Adam and Eve. Think about this. Perfect environment, perfect heredity, perfection. Adam chose Eve over God. And that's man's biggest problem ever since then. We, chose, we choose the woman over the Creator. That's still our problem. The first murder was from these two perfect creations' sons. The first civil war happened because of a father and his son. That ravaged a nation. There's not one single overly positive example, especially in the New Testament, of a family unit. And so that's what makes this, diff, this, this idea of teaching on the family so difficult. I wish we had one. We could say, okay, there's the model. So in the New Testament... What we have is a lot of teachings about family where Paul, the Apostle Paul, took the teachings of Jesus and applied the teachings of Jesus to the family unit, to marriage, to family, to relationships. And I can't overstate this enough. We've lost the understanding of how revolutionary and mind-blowing the teachings of Jesus were when they were applied to family. Never before was there a culture, a society that was built upon the teachings of Jesus like when it was applied by Paul to marriage and family? This, 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 the teachings in the Scripture were so revolutionary 
They were so mind-blowing. We look at the verses in Scripture about family and relationships and, and marriage, and we think they're old-fashioned, right? Like, the Bible hasn't kept up with the times. Things have changed, and the Bible hasn't, and there's old-fashioned. Originally, in the Greek worldview, the teachings of Scripture were absolutely revolutionary, especially regarding women and children. Mind-blowing that a teacher and a leader would say stuff like this. Matter of fact, women, before the teaching of Christ, as applied by Paul to marriage, women were treated no better. They had no more rights than cattle. They were possessions to be owned. And as long as they produced for the man, then they were worth keeping. Before the teachings of Christ. Women in the Roman worldview I'm sorry, children in the Roman worldview, most children weren't even named because the infant mortality rate was so high until they knew for certain that the kid was going to survive. They didn't even name them. Can you imagine? Now, truth be told, when Wyatt was born, our last, we left the hospital. It was Wyatt, right, Shell? Yeah. Yeah, you lose track after a while, whatever. We left the hospital and he didn't have a name. He was Baby X. Because we couldn't decide on a couple different names. And we, we let, they let us, back then, they let us leave without naming the kid. And we drove down the road, and Shelly's talking, what are we going to name him, what about this, what about that? And I pulled over the side of the road, I said, I'm not doing this. We're driving back to the hospital, and you're going to name this boy. <laughs> I mean, I, I could not handle a week or two of this, like, what? <laughs> come here, boy. And so we turned around, went back to the hospital, and I said, okay, we're going to pick a name. I don't care whether you name him Burt for all I care. We're just going to have a name. But, but back in the Roman worldview, like with inheritance, in the Roman worldview, in the Roman culture, if I had kids that they weren't particularly very good and I didn't like them very much, I would adopt a man, a grown man, to someone who was worthy of my inheritance and give my inheritance to him, not my kids. So, so the teaching in the Bible, we've lost understanding of how explosive and revolutionary this teaching is. In every culture... In every culture where the Christian worldview has been embraced, women and children do better. There are women all around the world under other religious systems that are fighting for the rights to be educated, for goodness sake. And unfortunately, what's happened in our society is now these teachings have become revolutionary again. They're so odd. They're revolutionary. Because they teach us to submit to one another. I know, ladies, I know. Any word that starts with sub, you revolt against. But the Bible says, not just women, some wives submit to husbands. It says, husbands, you submit yourself also to your wife. Mutual submission, one to another. And then in fleshing that out, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wife and lay down your life for her as Christ loved and laid down His life for the church. Die for her on a daily basis. 
in this culture where the woman says, I'm not going to submit to him. He's not worth submitting to. Like he's, we're equals in this. Well, I understand that. Die for my wife? Are you kidding me? Like, I got my world. I got my job. I got my stuff to do. It says, children, honor and obey your parents. See, that's what I'm saying. We snicker at that. As if one who does honor and obey their parents is the exception, not the rule. And it's just accepted these days that they don't. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't crush their spirit. That's so different than most fathers these days who are just hard-nosed, buck up, suck it up, get it done. Going to toughen you up a little bit. Or aren't even around to nurture their child. It's just different. The Bible says husbands and wives fulfill each other sexually. Submit yourself sexually to each other. It's what the command of Scripture is. Do you know the only reason the Bible gives, only legitimate reason the Bible gives for not regularly engaging in sex? Sorry if you're young. Sorry, this is kind of PG-13, NC-17, whatever. But you know the only reason the Bible says not to engage sexually with each other? Is to commit yourself to prayer. So when you're not submitting to each other in that way regularly, it better be because you're praying. See? And then it says, when you get done praying, get busy. Uh, the Bible says, husband, you belong to your wife. Your life and your body belongs to her. So when she says, clean out the garage, guess what? You submit and you die. And the Bible says, wives, your, your body, your life belongs to your husband. Mutual submission. And anything outside these parameters is contrary to God's revolutionary plan. Do you understand? You understand? I mean, all this stuff seems odd, doesn't it? If you talk about what the Bible says about it, doesn't that seem odd? Like, ugh. Now, here's the thing, and, here, and here's the struggle. And we're all going to struggle with it. Those things are the ideal. But they're not necessarily the real. Right? And Jesus continually points to the ideal. He continually points towards the ideal. And He always raises the current standard. He never lessens it. Jesus said, you've heard... Don't commit murder. Which, by the way, don't let anybody tell you the Bible says don't kill. It never says that. It says don't murder. So anyway, Jesus says, you've heard it say don't murder. I say that if you harbor hatred in your heart towards another one, spiritually you've mur you committed murder in your heart. So he's always raised the standard. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's never lessened it. He said, similarly, you've heard, don't commit adultery. He says, I tell you, when you look at a woman lustfully, longingly, 
sexually, you've committed spiritually, you've committed that sin in your heart. So he, he always raised it, and in that sin, he condemned, every, I don't know about women, he condemned every man. So he always raised the standard. He never lessened it. And he said, here's what you hear, here's what you know, here's what has been the teaching, but I'm raising the standard. That's the ideal. But the great thing about Jesus is that he never condemned those who failed the ideal as those without hope. And if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, I understand that's the ideal, but what about those who haven't lived up to it? Jesus would say, well, I'm not changing the ideal. The ideal is still the standard. I'm not changing. I'm not lessening it. I'm not lowering it. But I will forgive those who haven't lived up to it. And that's the tension we live in. See, the standard got higher and the grace got deeper. Jesus never changed the ideal for marriage, for family, for relationships. He never changed it. He said marriage is to be between a man and a woman for life. Divorce was never part of God's plan. It was always the result of sin at some level. That's the ideal. And Jesus has said that family consists of a man and a woman living together in marriage, committed to each other for life. Family is not those who are living together outside of marriage. Biblically and theologically, shacking up together outside of marriage is no better than gay marriage. And it's so interesting what the church has done to elevate and turn its gaze away from one and turn its gaze towards another. Heterosexual sex outside of marriage is sin just as homosexual sex is. Do you understand that? The standard hadn't changed. That's the ideal. And Jesus doesn't change it under the guise of grace nor love. And that's the tension we live with. To hold up the standard and to realize that while Jesus elevates the standard, He doesn't hate nor necessarily condemn those who live outside the ideal. He doesn't. He offers mercy and grace. And the hardest thing for us is to live within the tension between the ideal and the real. Do you understand? Because many of us live outside the ideal. We've gone through divorce. There's been adultery. We've lived with people that we weren't married to. We've had relationships with people we should not have had relationships with. We've exasperated our kids. We've been We've treated our spouse as a commodity rather than an equal and submitted to You understand what I'm saying? We've all lived outside the ideal. And oftentimes, to make ourselves feel better about living outside the ideal, we've sacrificed the ideal to match our real. 
because it makes us feel better. That's just the way it is now. Now, let me say this. If you're single, please understand, don't think that marriage is going to be your fix. I, I, I don't think the church has done a good job talking to single people very much because what we've portrayed to single people is, you know, find your spouse, get married, it'll make you, you know, your life better. Please don't understand that. If you're single, don't think that marriage is your fix. While you're single, understand that God is your fix, not some other person. And maybe one day, maybe one day, God will bring another person into your life who is committed to God, who upholds the ideal standard for what Jesus has given us through Paul in the Scripture. Maybe that will happen one day. But realize that marriage is not your fix nor your goal. Especially if you're single, understand, marriage is not your goal. Holiness is your goal. Not marriage. While you're single, learn how to be alone without being lonely. Do you understand? Here's the reason. I'm going to tell you the reason. Okay. Here's the reason. While you're single, learn, learn to be alone without being lonely. Here's the reason. Because there's no such thing as marriage problems. There's no such thing as marriage problems. There's only single problems in the context of a lifetime relationship. You understand what I'm saying? So the problems that single people have, if they don't rectify those, they take into a marriage and those problems get bigger. Did any of your single problems, you married people, did any of your single problems automatically go away just because you got married to another single person with problems? No. They're just exasperated. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of y'all were so messed up like me that you married perfection. I was like, hey, everything's great. I don't know. See, what marriage is, marriage is two singles with problems now getting together and becoming one bigger problem. And most of those married people are going, yeah, that's it. So, so if you're single, please understand. Don't assume that marriage is your fix. Don't pursue marriage as a goal. Holiness is your goal. And holiness is the goal for every married person as well. Jesus was questioned about marriage. And Jesus, in answering the question about marriage, went back to the beginning. And he pointed to the ideal. And in Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? See, there were two schools of thought back in the day. One school of thought said you had to have a reason like she burned the toast to divorce her. The other one said that you don't have to have a reason. If you're tired of her, just get rid of her. The, the man could do either of those. The woman could do nothing. The woman could do nothing. She had no say in this. This was, this was crazy, the way that, that culture was. Jesus replies, haven't you read? What a slap in the face of these learned scholars. So, you guys not read the law? 
that at the beginning, way back, the Creator, God, made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In question about marriage and divorce, Jesus goes back to the beginning and he said, here's the ideal. The ideal is what God makes one, we cannot unone. That's the ideal. You see what he's doing here? He's elevating the ideal. But because of the people's real, they forgot about the ideal. And they said, will you please renegotiate the ideal and bring it down to our real? Because we've not been able to live the ideal, so make us feel better and change the ideal to match our real. Do you understand? And we've done the same. In the beginning, Jesus says divorce was never part of the plan. But Jesus knew that not everything would work out according to the ideal. And so there's grace to cover our sin and our failure and our mistakes and the issues we create without negating the ideal. So they asked Jesus, well, what? if that's still the ideal, what are you going to do to all those people who got divorced. What are you going to do to all those people who committed adultery? What are you going to do to all those people who messed up? Just say, I'm not going to do anything to them. I'm going to do something for them. And if they come to me, acknowledging the ideal, and that they've fallen short of that, I will forgive. And I'll redeem. And I'll rectify. And I'll make their present able to be right. See, if they follow me, So the question that we have to answer when we talk about marriage and family and relationships is this. Will we still embrace the standard that we've fallen short of? Will we still embrace the standard that we've fallen short of? Or will we be tempted to redefine the terms and the expectations to make ourselves feel better about where we are? Do you understand what I'm saying? And this is always the tension within Christianity. Because there is an ideal. And there's the real. And the temptation is to redefine the ideal to make us feel better about the real. And God says, don't you ever do that. Because when you redefine the ideal to make it match your real, you lessen God's holiness. And He said, I want you to be holy like I am. Not perfect. He said, I'm perfect, you're not, but you can be holy. Don't let go of my ideal. Here is why, regarding family and marriage, here is why holding the standard of ideal is so important. Because here's the thing, if you have been through divorce, you know that that is not what you want for your child. Right? I've never talked to a husband or wife going through divorce who says, you know what, if I could wish one thing for my child, if they could just have a marriage and then go through divorce, that's what I would wish. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. And I don't mean to make light of it, I just want you to understand that that is not what we want for our kids. Parents want the ideal for their children, right? 
And this is why it's important to talk about. And this is why it is so important for us to hold the standard of the ideal and not sacrifice the standard of the ideal just because we don't like our real. But we need to uphold this standard of what the ideal is because if we let go of that standard, then we settle for just whatever. Because if there's no ideal, then life just is life and it just happens. And too many people have settled for us just life. Now, some of you here have lived the ideal. You've lived it. And you have loved through a lifetime. And that's exactly what you want for your own children and your own grandkids. Because you understand the value and the beauty of it. And even though we, to acknowledge there is an ideal, it makes us realize that most of us have not lived up to it. That's a difficult tension to live in. But we have to. Some, some families, some relationships, some marriages deal with the same issue year after year after year. Right? The same thing time and time and time again. And what is real in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships is something that is far from ideal, but it seems like you can't get out of that rut. And you just go around and around and around over and over and over the same things. And when that happens, the temptation is to lessen the ideal to match your real, to make you feel better about this path that you just keep walking and can't get out of. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 2, and it's not about marriage, but if we can apply it to it, this, the idea of it. And, in, and in, Matt, in Deuteronomy 2, it says, it's about the people of God walking through the desert, and God says to them, then we turned back and set out toward the wilderness along the route to the Red Sea, and the Lord had directed me. The Lord said, hey, I want you to turn around and go a different way. He said, for a long time we made a way around the hill country of Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you've made your way around this hill country long enough. Turn around. Here's what I know. Some of you have walked the same path year after year after year. That is not God's ideal. And God is saying in your marriage, in your family, relationship, it's time to turn around. You've got to do stuff different. You keep walking that same path of dysfunction and outside of God's ideal, you're never going to get anywhere. To settle for the real without holding up the standard of the ideal, is to walk the same path over on the same mountain time and time and time again. In the context of marriage, some of us have walked around the same mountain year after year after year. The relationship hasn't gotten better. The communication hasn't gotten better. The family hasn't gotten better. And what's hard is as we walk that path, we see others that are better. I mean, this is so interesting to me. You read the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2, and after God says, I want you to turn around and do something different, He immediately says to the people, He says, you're going to pass through the territory of your brothers in the sense of Esau who live in Seir, verse 4 and 5. They're going to be afraid of you, but be careful. Don't provoke them to war. I haven't given you their land. I gave their land to them. You're going to see people around you 
who are walking better than you, who seems as though they got it all together, who are being blessed, being favored. And you're going to think, well, how come that's not me? And God does that to His people three different times. He says, you're going to walk by this person, see them doing great, but that's not yours. You're going to walk by this people, see them doing great, but that's not yours. But you're going to walk by this people, see them doing great, but that's not yours. And it's almost as if we say, well, God, what about my time? When's it going to get better for me? When are things going to improve? I see everybody else doing better, getting blessed, doing all. When is my time? God says the first thing you have to do for it to be your time is walk a different way. you got to turn around. Your marriage has to head in a different direction. Your relationship with your children has to head in a different direction. Your relationships have to change. And while it changes, you hold on to the ideal even if your real doesn't match it. You hold on to God's standard. You don't bring His standard down to match your real. And you say, God, I know that my real right now isn't your ideal, but help me move towards your ideal for my life, for my marriage, for my relationships, for my family. And when your real is different than God's ideal, you defer to His ways. Do you understand? And the church's role Our role in this is to hold the line on what God says and be unmoving in that line. And it doesn't depend on what the Democrats say. It doesn't depend on what the Republicans say. It doesn't depend on what Facebook says. It doesn't depend on the therapist, psychologist, or Methodist. What matters is this is God's ideal and this is the standard. And while we acknowledge the standard, we also acknowledge that many of us have not lived up to that standard. And in that difference, in that gap, is God's mercy and grace if we'll come to Him and walk a different way. If you're still in the same marriage you were five years ago walking on the same mountain, that is not ideal. You need to recommit yourself to God's ideal. And set a new trajectory. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're single and you're dating like you were a couple years ago, that is not God's ideal. You need to reaffirm God's ideal and set a new trajectory. And the first step to moving towards God's ideal is to make a conscious decision to pursue that ideal. God, I failed you in the past. And we're not where we should be. but I acknowledge that you have an ideal and I want to walk towards it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the question you have to ask yourself is this. When have I given my past enough of my current attention? When have I given my past enough of my current attention? See, what halts most of our progress is giving our past too much attention. Well, they hurt me. Well, they failed me. Well, they did this. Well, I haven't yet. That's all stuff then. And God says, I have a new path for you to walk. I got a new thing for you to do. The Bible says it like this. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and straining towards what is ahead, the goal, the standard. I press on. Do you understand what I'm saying? I press on. 
That means I neglect to give attention to the things in my past that are far less than the ideal. And I press on towards God's ideal goal. Even though I haven't reached it yet, even though there's failures in my past, there is an ideal that I'm reaching for and I'm walking towards. The solution to our less than ideal real is not to lessen the ideal to our real, is to change the trajectory of our real towards the ideal. Does that make sense? I don't know if I can say it again, so it's just kind of going on the fly right there. The solution is not to lessen the real to match the lessen the ideal to match our real. The solution is to change our real towards the trajectory of the ideal. That's the solution. I, I, I was thinking about this, Jay, and I'll wrap up, Rick, if you guys come forward. Some of you are like, yeah, Rick, please come forward so he'll wrap up. Have you walked around the same mountain long enough? Have you walked around the same mountain long enough? Here's the thing. I hope your long enough is short enough so you can live like you're old while you're still young. Here's what I know. The older I get, the more I'm unwilling to live without being free. When I was young, when I was in my 20s, I could put up with stuff. Oh, it's just for a time. It'll pass. I can deal with it. But the older I get, the more I value my freedom. The more I value being free from my past, the more I value being free from my pain, the more I value being free the more I value my marriage being free from its issues, the more I value my family being free from its issues, the more I value being free and healed from the dysfunction that I've created in my marriage and my family. When I was young, you just deal with it for a while. But now that I'm old, you understand what I'm saying? I don't have time for that anymore. And if it means me saying, God, I have not lived up to your ideal. And I realize to acknowledge your ideal is to realize that I have failed in my real. But God, I want my real to at least have the trajectory towards your ideal, even though I may never reach it. My trajectory needs to change. And if you've walked around that mountain of illness and dysfunction in your marriage and your relationships. I hope your long enough of walking around the mountain is short enough while you can still live old like you're young. And say, now it changes. Now it changes. I will never be perfect. That ship has long sailed. My relationships will never be per per perfect. That is gone now. That's a dream. It's a vapor. I'll never get that back. But God has not left me in the despair of my past. Yes, there is an ideal. And Jesus realizes that your real is not it. He says, don't sacrifice my ideal. Just change your trajectory. 
And I will come in the midst of that and recreate your real. Do you understand what I'm saying? So every morning we wake up with the decision to head towards the ideal. With with the decision, I'm going to head towards the ideal. And if I miss it, I'm going to keep walking a new path. The trajectory to my fam- for my family is the ideal of Scripture. The trajectory of my marriage is the ideal of Scripture. The trajectory of my dating is the ideal of Scripture. The trajectory of my relationship is the ideal of Scripture. And I may miss it time and time and time again, but the trajectory is the ideal. And you continue to live in that tension. Because here's the thing, guys. Here's what we have to understand. It's only in the tension between God's ideal and our real that we experience this thing called grace. It's only in the tension. So please don't lessen the tension to make yourselves feel better about your real. Live in that tension because it's in that tension that you experience this incredible thing over your marriage and over your family and over your singleness and over your relationships called the grace of God. Do you understand? So I'm just setting this series up today. We're going to talk about all kinds of things in relationships and marriage and family. If you know anybody in your life who comes from a family, you invite them here these next few weeks together. You understand? I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you.